listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, the great and powerful. Wade, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, Kevin, I can only assume that all of your wrestling moves are 100% real. Yeah, 100% genuine. Unlike those pretenders in the WWE, I do all of the flips and body slams 100% for real. Coincidentally, 100% real is also my wrestling name. Listeners, in just a bit, we're going to be reviewing the new wrestling-centered film from Tyler Nilsson and Michael Swartz, The Peanut Butter Falcon. But first, we'll be paying off those Wizard of Oz references with our review of the new Judy Garland biopic. That would be the Renee Zellweger starring Judy. So I'm thinking about this, Kevin. I really believe that the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion would make a great wrestling trio. Yeah, well, incidentally, the Cowardly Lion is my wrestling alter ego. Find out more about those two films coming up on this episode, episode 219 of Seeing and Believing. No. Come on. No, Sid. Judy. No. No. I'm working harder than you would ever believe. Are you? And right now, my husband is making a deal for me that means I can start over. You're not listening. I have someone I can rely on now. Someone who's helping me make money instead of losing it at the track. Can we not? I'm going to get a place, and they're going to live with me. Yes, listeners, we are here. Episode 219. We talked a lot about wrestling, Kevin, in that introduction. And I feel like it was one of those one of those topics we've been wanting to talk about just based on all the ideas we had for the introduction. <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid I've actually exhausted all of my pro wrestling ideas there in that intro. I know next to nothing about that that whole world and subculture. So hopefully you can help me out a little bit here. <laughs> okay, so I wasn't allowed to watch wrestling growing up, but I love the idea of wrestling. And so my friends and I, we'd like get on trampolines and we do like wrestling moves and we each had different names. So we did actually have <laughs> wrestling names. And mine was the the clever karate general. That was that was the, my name, Kevin. The clever karate general? That's no, no, a, no, that's... no. The name was clever, but it was just the karate general. <laughs> oh. oh, I I am speechless at your inventiveness as a trampoline wrestler in your childhood. Yeah, I was just so uh think I was so creative just thinking of new things off the top of my head and so I'm sure no one else thought of that before. Did you ever do any backyard wrestling? No, not I mean not like that level of inventiveness. There was roughhousing of course. My big thing was actually choreographing lightsaber fights using broom handles oh, in my man. backyard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that was more my speed. Yeah, I did we we did that as well. We did that and when Phantom Menace was released, I was 12. That's 20 years ago. It's insane. It was like a huge thing and we all got bruises on our knuckles because the broom handles mm-hmm. hit our hands um yeah. but it was a lot of fun yeah it's a an occupational hazard but worth it for i'm sure the dazzling fight choreography you came up with 
<laughs> no, no, it was, it was it was incredible. Well, we will bypass our wrestling and Star Wars references for now because this week's episode begins with a stroll down the yellow brick road as we discuss Rupert Gould's Judy Garland biopic, Judy. Set in the final year of Garland's life, Judy follows the iconic performer known for her roles in The Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, and A Star is Born, as she performs a set of sold-out shows in London during the winter of 1968. With her life spiraling out of control, Garland, played here by Renee Zellweger, hopes the concerts will offer her financial stability and, in turn, a comfortable home for her children. Kevin, I, I don't know much about Judy Garland outside of watching a handful of her classic films, and... This blind spot most certainly influenced how I perceived Gould's film, as well as Renee Zellweger's performance. So, my opening question to you is this. Did your knowledge, or lack thereof, of Garland's life affect what you thought of this picture? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know very much about Garland just in general. I've She's actually a little bit of a blind spot for me in terms of my uh, my viewing. I've seen, of course, the, the Wizard of Oz, but I've not seen any of her other films, which is, I realize, something that some would argue would oblige me to turn in my, my cinephile card right now. So... <laughs> Let's get that out on the table right away. Um, I did kind of have uh, an idea of the general outline of her of her later life. You know, the the divorces, some of the problems with uh, substance abuse, um, and just generally a lot of the struggles that she faced as a lot of uh, golden age Hollywood uh, actresses faced in terms of the control exerted over them by the, the studio heads who were, you know, exclusively male. So I kind of knew about that. I didn't know much beyond just the barest outlines. So I do feel as if maybe some aspects of Zellweger's performance in terms of how close she comes to, uh, sounding and looking like Garland herself are a little bit lost on me. That said, I think that it didn't really diminish my enjoyment of the film at all. I I liked this film overall. I don't. I, I think it suffers from a lot of the problems that so many biopics do. But on balance, I do think that Gould's approach is is artful enough and focused enough more importantly to make it overall an, an effective experience. So that's me. I am curious to know Wade since you said that it did affect your yeah. uh, enjoyment of the film whether that was a positive effect or a negative effect. Yeah, I mean I I'm in a similar boat to you Kevin in that I I've seen a couple of her movies and I think she does well in those performances. I can totally understand how she became a star. I really don't have much knowledge outside of what you outlined about her life. I don't know all too well what she looked like when she was this age, right before she passed away, uh, what her voice was like at that time. And it did influence me. And I think it was a positive. And the reason I think it was a positive is because I'm not necessarily comparing Zellweger's performance to the real Judy Garland. Oh, did she look like her enough? 
Did she have her mannerisms down? Did she sing like her? I I don't have much to compare her to, and so I think I think that's good. I think I think that's that's a bonus. I think Zellweger does a, a fantastic job with this role. I like the movie. I do have some. I don't even know if you would say reservations about the film, but some aspects of the movie that I felt like were undercooked. But overall, it sometimes it's just so difficult to watch a performer play the role of someone that you seem to know really well. And that'll be a challenge when we do get the Mr. Rogers biopic with Tom Hanks. What will it be like to see him in that role? But because Garland wasn't playing in as many movies during this time, I haven't seen uh, very many of her uh movies the movies that she did later on in her career so i i think all of that's a bonus and like you said focused this movie's focused and i think that works to its advantage yeah the screenplay uh by tom edge focuses almost exclusively on just this very brief period of her life where she went to london to give a series of performances that were in a lot of ways her her last hurrah as a as a performer and that right there is an excellent choice that in a lot of ways saves this film from the trap that so many other biopics fall into where it feels almost as if you're what you're getting is the cliff's notes version of their biography so you know like this is their origin story this is their troubled upbringing this is the the moment when they were discovered all of that that's really a structure that has been beaten into the ground at this point. And to this film's credit, um, Edge and Golds don't adhere to that at all, um, with the exception of a couple of flashbacks to Garland's uh, early career. We don't even really see anything other than uh, Renee Zellweger as Julie, Judy Garland towards the end of her career. And that allows the film to feel less like it's just telling a sequence of events and more like it's telling a story. And this is something that I I harp on all the time with biopics is that that's kind of what's important is to find the story within the story of this person's life and see what you can draw out of that. And I think this film, what it draws out of that, it says some really interesting things about the nature of fame, about the the way that audiences can can both lavish adulation on a performer and also be the performer's worst enemies there's a lot going on in there that uh i appreciated quite a bit and it's kind of signaled early on in the film when garland and her two children are in a taxi they're they've just been turned away from the swanky hotel because they haven't had the money to actually pay for their stay and so they're heading to uh the home of garland's ex-husbands to to spend the night and Gould shoots it in such a way that we get a close-up on Garland's face uh, in this dark taxi cab with the lights of the city outside the window. And it's almost, in that angle and the framing, it's almost positing Garland as somebody who's constantly aware of being in the spotlight. But there's something between her and that light that's keeping her from fully enjoying it. It's something that's always in the background, but 
there's always a slight remove there that is a little bit alienating to her. And I think that that's an idea that the film digs into with varying degrees of success throughout its runtime. Yeah, I I think the film does a, a better job of analyzing the the reality of fame and fortune and in public perception at the beginning than it does in the rest of the movie. And that's an aspect of the movie that I felt like was undercooked. We get a really good speech at the beginning. Uh, Judy Garland is a young child. She is on the set of Wizard of Oz. And the either manager or director talks to her about her life and essentially says, you could go off and you could be a housewife or you could get a regular job. You could live, quote, a small life or you could do something bigger and better. And normally in a movie like this, that would be the cliché inspirational speech. Don't settle for a small life when you could impact millions. And here, based on the way that it's shot, based on the performances, it's definitely not inspirational. In fact, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's pretty sad. And that, yeah, it's almost like a like a Faustian bargain. Like yes, <laughs> it's it's the temptation almost rather than something positive. And that's where the film I think is the most inspired when it takes those ideals and it kind of just twists them up. And then I felt like the movie almost kind of lost that, and it becomes a exercise in watching Zellweger suffer. And in, in that sense, it reminded me of Simon Curtis's 2011 film, My Week with Marilyn. It stars Michelle Williams as Marilyn Monroe. I thought the film was fine. I think Michelle Williams, like she is in most of her movies, is very good there. But I left that movie asking myself, okay, well, what's, what's kind of the point of this picture? Is it just to have a snapshot into this performer's life? What is it saying? What are some of these bigger ideas? And when Judy ended, I I felt like some of those questions bubbled to the surface as well. I think it does a better job of looking at fame than My Week with Maryland. But I don't know that it said or did all that much other than what what we could probably learn in a, a short paragraph or a couple paragraph biography. So that's I think where the where the film's biggest weakness is is it doesn't develop those themes like it sets itself up to. I, I don't even know if it's so much that it doesn't develop those themes, but you're right that that ending really is a big misstep because it, it you know I, I praise the film so far for not falling into the biopic cliches, but yet again we have a biopic that ends with the audience <laughs> giving the performer a standing ovation, and that's always a cliche. But in this movie, it's especially egregious because everything up to that point has been more jaundiced about. Um, both the audience's responses to Garland and also Garland's need for that response. There, it's mm-hmm. it's depicted as kind of a mutually parasitic relationship where she she has a an almost pathological need to be adored by uh, a crowd or an audience, uh, and the audience has this need for her to 
come up and entertain them. And when she doesn't entertain them in the way they want, they turn on her like a dime. And that's really interesting to watch that push and pull throughout the film. So when we get to the end and everybody's giving her a standing ovation and she she asks, you know, promise you won't forget me. And, you know, that's kind of the note that the film ends on. It seems as if it's jettisoning all that interesting exploration of the very real pitfalls of fame in favor of kind of like, well, it's it's still great though that that she feels all this love from this audience because it's not really love. There, there are a couple of figures in that audience who she spends a lot of time with. They're a, they're a gay couple. Uh, Garland means a lot to them. And this is during a time period where homosexuality was only recently... Uh, they, they, they used to have uh, anti-homosexuality laws on the books in England, and you could be jailed for having that orientation. That's ju- just in the very recent past. And so for them to see Garland is a very special treat for them. It's very meaningful for them. And there's a connection established there. Why the rest of the audience is kind of drawn into that kind of relationship isn't really made clear by the film other than that it's nice for her to receive that ovation. And that's runs at counter purposes to what Gould's doing with the rest of the film in a way that just frankly doesn't work. Yeah, I I was watching Charlie Wilson's War for the first time earlier this week, or maybe maybe it was last week, and that film also ends in a standing ovation. But while that film is okay, it, it's not great by any means, that ending is strong because the standing ovation is ironic. And it means something else entirely than what we actually see on the screen. And this film doesn't have that type of awareness, and it kind of falls into that cliche. I I do like some of the tender moments here. I think many of the relationships are a little underdeveloped, but we do get some we get some scenes where characters seem to genuine, genuinely connect with each other. Uh, I like Finn uh, Wittrock. He uh, is played by Mickey Deans. No, he plays Mickey Deans. Uh, he's good as her fifth and final husband, but that's also, sadly, a little bit underdeveloped. The spark for this film for me were some of these sequences when Zellweger gets to sing. And from what I understand, she actually did sing for this film. Uh, there are some sequences that I think are just fantastic. One is the trolley song uh, from Meet Me in St. Louis. That whole sequence is just a lot of fun. And it it gives the idea that while Garland had issues and while she struggled, even during these performances... She still had this it factor. She had something that that you can't teach people, and she was still somehow able to make it work. And those flashes in the movie, I, I thought, were were really wonderful. Yeah, that first time that we see Garland really flex her on stage muscle is is a wonderful one for the ways in which it's it's built up to. So we kind of we see her. Um, feeling unsure about going on stage in a, in a strange city kind of reclaiming some of her of of her past glory there's some uncertainty there but when she steps on stage 
it, it's it's almost like a switch is flipped and she just dominates the entire theater and that's a the the editing in that scene and Zellweger's uh both musical performance and her acting performance is just electrifying frankly and it it's all done like it's it's not done through having audi- you know reaction shots in the audience where they're just overawed and you know one of them leans over and whispers she's amazing it's all the the camera stays on the stage it stays with Garland herself and just kind of follows her through her performance and that that's a really great cho- choice on Gould's part to trust his lead actress to show the same domination and screen presence that Garland herself had and let the audience kind of experience that that sensation for themselves essentially putting us in the movie theater in the audience of that london theater and letting us experience the the awe of that moment for ourselves and i think it's moments like that that set this biopic a little bit above most others in in the genre yeah and and i think too the movie what the movie has kind of going for it in some sequences and and as i mentioned especially at the beginning is this almost sort of back and forth between the stage and off the stage and at the beginning we get the the title card and the words Judy are bedazzled. They look like the red ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. And we hear inspirational music. And it it feels ironic, kind of like that opening speech with the individual who's trying to convince her to really kind of focus on her performance. And this idea that we get a lot of flash and pizzazz on the screen but to get that uh, there is abuse that occurs and there are problems that we don't always see in the background and so we get some of those uh, sequences where you know on the stage she's she's singing the trolley car song and it's it's wonderful and then she can barely function outside of that Uh, and then all of that starts to bleed together in the picture and her problems off stage affect her on stage. And I would have liked to see some of those relationships developed a little bit more. We hear a lot about her children. She really does want to get back to her children, but that's not fully fleshed out uh, other than some dialogue about it, uh, what that means to her as, as a mother. So I think we could have filled in a they could have filled in some of this background information and perhaps kind of uh, done some retooling and made this a really good biopic. But like you mentioned, Kevin, I I think it's above average for many of the biopics that we have uh, seen lately. And Zellweger's performance is really great. And I think, too, she'll probably be nominated somewhere because this definitely feels like one of those best actress nominated films, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and justly so. The the thing you pointed out about there being some aspects of the film that don't feel fully developed may be true. I think that, especially in Zellweger's few scenes with Garland's children, those are so strong, and Zellweger has such 
Again, Gould really likes his close-ups in this film uh, of Zellweger's face, and she fully delivers so that I I don't feel like we really necessarily needed more scenes with her and the children because the scenes where she does interact with them in person or over the phone are just so heart-wrenching, and that's all in the performance. It may not necessarily be in the screenplay, but Zellweger really anchors moments like that and moments elsewhere in the film. There's a really touching moment that almost skates by uh, if you if you are kind of not really paying attention, but it's the moment where uh, she's in her hotel room at London and uh, Mickey Deans, uh, her, her husband-to-be, shows up and, and surprises her. And she she's overjoyed to see him and she just gestures to the room around her and she says i'm drowning in space and she invites him to stay but it's that line i'm drowning in space that in zellweger's hand she doesn't point put an exclamation point on it but there's so much contained in that line and in that line reading that tells us uh who garland is at this point in her life and how she thinks of her station in life that does so much that it does so much work that's not necessarily in the writing but is there in the finished film yeah well i i think yeah i definitely agree with you on on the performance and what that does to this character and and into this story listeners that's our review of judy if you've seen the movie and you'd like to offer us some of your thoughts we'd love to hear them just tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing the peanut butter falcon coming up later on in the episode. Listeners, that song is Plan B by The Fishermen. We want to thank you for supporting us via our Patreon page. Anytime you support us, you help our show move forward, continue on, and we're grateful. We're grateful for that support. We have a number of different donation levels. One of those, that's our favorite, is the What Can You Buy for $5 level and Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you that question. What can you buy for, for five bucks? Uh, five dollars would get you a seeing and believing branded hamster wheel. So <laughs> yeah, if you you get if you're if little nibbles is feeling looking a little bit paunchy, a little bit saggy around the middle, and you want him to get a little bit of exercise while celebrating your fandom, uh, you can kill two proverbial birds with one proverbial stone. Hey. Or two proverbial hamsters with don't one say wheel. It. Don't say oh, <laughs> No. You know. No. Now look, now look what you've done. Look what, look what you've done. <laughs> you, I do have to say this, Kevin. So we, we say that every week. We ask that question every week. And 
I, I often wonder if our listeners are like, oh man, are they tired of it? Is it like, is it like Wakanda Forever with Chadwick Boseman? He's like, oh, I don't really want to do it anymore. I got to tell you, I love asking that question every week. It doesn't get old. And I love answering it every week. I don't know. I literally do not know what I'm going to say before the words are out of my mouth. So it is, it's always an adventure. It's it no, it is an adventure. And something else that's also an adventure. Going to our Patreon campaign page, checking out our video. Hey, that came out over a year ago, but I still really enjoy the video. You can check that out. And becoming a supporter, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I mentioned before, we appreciate all of your support. Yeah, and Christ and Pop Culture also uh, loves your support. If you aren't a Patreon sort of person, but you want to support good Christian writing, good Christian podcasts, both of those can be found at our parent site, ChristandPopCulture.com. This week was uh, a full one over there. Lots of good articles getting posted. There's one uh, about First Reformed titled On First Reformed, Narcissism, Narcissism and Being a Beautiful Soul. I'm always 100% there for uh, fresh off the griddle, first reformed content. So that was really nice to see. There's also a really interesting article. If you're uh, somebody who is a bit of a music buff or just likes looking back nostalgically at the heyday of CCM in the 90s, there's a really great article by Eric Danielson called Singing a Better Song, CCM's Incomplete Witness on Race. And Danielson just kind of traces the ways that race, the conversation on race manifested itself or didn't in the popular Christian music of the 80s and 90s. So of course, there's discussion of DC Talk, Michael W. Smith, all the greats if you were into that sort of thing. It's a really interesting article, even if you weren't. Um, so yeah, go check those out on the site. They are good reading. Yeah, you know, I have not read any of those articles, but they sound great. I, I'm not just on staff at Christ and Pop Culture. I'm also its number one fan. So I'm going to definitely check those out. And I appreciate all of our listeners who support Christ and Pop Culture. Once again, we also encourage you to go to Twitter at Pod. At C Belief POD. Tell us about some of your favorite conversations on the show here, maybe a favorite episode. We'd love to hear that. It's always good to get some encouragement. You can also email us, seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. New rule is you can't slow me down. You understand? Put those on. So Ross says go. I say jump, you say how high. How high. There it is. Rule number one, don't slow me down. Rule number two, I'm in charge. And you're gonna carry your own weight. You are in charge. That's right. Uh, maybe we should. Maybe we should have our own secret handshake. What kind of secret handshake for what? Bud, dude, friends. Bud, dude, friends, handshake. All right, yeah. let's go. Hurry up. All right, three of those, four of those, one of those. Now what? Like that. Yeah. Only one special shit happens in life. Yeah, uh, special things. Special things, you don't curse. No. Why don't you curse? I don't. Okay, come on. You are in charge. Exactly. Come on. 
Hey, what's rule number one? What's rule number one? Party? No, not party. No, it's not party. We're back with the second half of our show, and I promise that there's not going to be any more stumbling attempts on my part to try to sound like I know anything at all about professional wrestling, so everyone can just breathe easy now. (laughs) Well, I would love, I always love to hear people who don't know anything about wrestling talk about wrestling, because if wrestling's fake, then our conversations about wrestling can be (laughs) fake too. Uh, That's a good point. Maybe that's something, (laughs) some bonus content for our Patreon subscribers, maybe. Uh, That's something that... I could supply the the depth of my lack of knowledge mm. of professional wrestling is uh, measure can't be measured. So mm. maybe maybe that'd be a good thing to offer. But fortunately, we don't have to spend this segment talking about professional wrestling itself. We can talk about a movie that is centrally concerned with that in a lot of ways. That would be uh, the new indie film, The Peanut Butter Falcon. The Peanut Butter Falcon is the feature film debut of writer-directors Tyler Nilsson and Mike Schwartz, and it follows Zach, a young man with Down syndrome, as he escapes the government-run home where he's been living in order to pursue his dream of becoming a professional wrestler. Zach, who is played by another newcomer, Zach Gottsagen, crosses paths with a down-on-his-luck fisherman, played by Shia LaBeouf, and together the odd couple embark on a journey to both achieve Zach's dream and also maybe help LaBeouf's character Tyler come to peace with himself. Wade, this movie has gotten a lot of praise for the way that it foregrounds Gottsagen, who has Down syndrome himself. In its portrayal of Zack as the protagonist of the film, I'm curious to know what you thought of Gottsagen's performance and also what you thought of the movie that Nilsson and Schwartz have built around him. Yeah, no, I think Zack does a really great job here. And, and part of that is the film allows his character to be funny, but he's not the point of the joke. And I... I appreciate that. Uh, obviously, probably doesn't even need to be said, but that quality helps this movie and its central idea, the importance of these very different individuals, kind of move forward. So I, th- I think he does a really good job. As for the film, I I like this movie. I think it's charming. I think it's funny. It's also pretty messy. And so you almost have to get past some of these really pitfalls in the screenplay in order to get to the central core of this film. And I I think most of that is just the characters. The characters talking to each other and having fun with each other. They seem to genuinely be having a good time, genuinely uh, enjoying each other's company. And in that sense, this sort of Mark Twain buddy road trip movie works because that's kind of what you that's kind of what you need. So a film that has its problems, but one that ultimately uh, worked for me. Yeah, well, I'll agree that um, Zach Gottsagen in the in the central role is quite good. And it's it's not just the the fact that it's a an example of representation uh, being increased on screen for for actors who have de- developmental or other disabilities, he brings a, a certain presence to the role that really 
helps both the role and his interactions with LaBeouf's character really work. He's got kind of this, there's almost a slyness to the way that he plays Zach that helps it feel a little bit less like an inspirational story where he's almost like uh, an example of uh, a person who has disabilities but is somehow purer than the rest of the world, which is kind of you know an insulting caricature in its own right and brings it down to something that's a lot more real and lived in. As for the rest of the film, I I think this film is a mess and not in a good way. <laughs> there, there's so much that works about Gott Sagan's performance that almost feels as if this film spent all of its energy making sure that central aspect of it worked and neglected to realize that pretty much everything else about this film is broken. <laughs> like there's there's a lot that I that I don't think works in in the writing. Uh not only in the way that uh the story itself plays out. It's kind of it seems to be going for almost this magical realism by the end, the, the almost this whimsical sense that what we're seeing on screen isn't necessarily a gritty, uh grounded, realistic uh world. But Nilsson and and Schwartz don't really do enough with the camera, uh, with the way that they visualize this entire story working to really sell the idea of the magical realism. So the parts where it does manifest kind of come out of nowhere. Um, And frankly, I don't think that Dakota Johnson's character makes any sense at all. (laughs) She, She plays the social worker who kind of comes out to find... Gottsag and Zach after he uh after he escapes from the home and she feels more like a prop than a flesh and blood human being which is a problem because she's probably the third the character with the third most screen time after LaBeouf and Gottsag himself yeah her character is kind of strange she is working at this uh, retirement home and Zach runs away and the director is basically like, no, you can't call the police. You have to track him down. And so she's riding around in this, you know, this bus trying to get him. It, it doesn't make a ton of sense. I liked all three characters kind of hanging out together. She's underdeveloped, which which makes me sad because I think she does a good job with what she's given. There's this one conversation between her and Shia LaBeouf where he accuses her of of not treating Zach like a capable individual. And she kind of cuts back with this, hey, for the last two years, I've been working in this retirement home, serving all different types of people. So you really don't have a reason to, to come at me. And then she kind of opens up later on in the movie about something that's that's happened in her life. And I think she does a fine job with that. But she is she is a, a, a prop. I mean, that's just simple. She's underdeveloped. She is. Uh, but I did like them hanging out. As for the magical realism, I I totally agree with you. <laughs> that you know, it, at the end, it really wants to sell this this magical realism, and it doesn't work. Uh, so film is 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 pretty messy. But I I enjoyed, like I mentioned before, it just. Allowing these characters to kind of talk to each other. Shia LaBeouf, he is, he's such a fascinating actor. And I watched him growing up on Even Stevens. And then 
as he's kind of transformed, he was in the Transformer movies and then Indiana Jones 4, and then he's made this almost like turn in his career. I really enjoyed him in David Ayers' film, Fury, and I like him a lot here. He just seems to kind of sink into this role, his, his dialogue, his delivery, and his word choices here to kind of re- reflect this southern fried individual and he is really kind of this straightforward shooter uh which allows him to connect with zach and there's some great really dialogue moments that are funny but also also really good uh one scene he's talking about zach and he basically is like hey you can't be everything like you can't be anything you can't be anything you want to be you can't be a, a basketball player uh most people can't but you are strong and you're important and in less capable hands some of those lines would just come off really bad but they don't they come off really well and like i said it is it is charming and it's funny and in some ways you know you could say it's heartwarming and i don't know a better word to to use than to say heartwarming but i but i think it is in many uh, instances uh, with this film, and I think the message and kind of the component is is there. The character of Tyler in this film is is an interesting one, the, and I kind of went back and forth on LaBeouf's performance over the course of the film because it seems almost from scene to scene uh, he either has these really wonderful understated moments uh, that are just so natural and and feel very. Uh, there, there's just a warmth that exudes from them. I'm thinking of a scene where he's on a raft with Zach. They're they're by themselves, and he just kind of reaches over. He doesn't say anything. There's nothing really that prompts it. He just reaches over and kind of like lightly slaps Zach on the cheek. You know, not doesn't really haul off and hit him, but it's not just like a little pat. It's kind of a somewhere in between there. And then you know, Zach slaps him back in their turn. They kind of almost get into a little slap fight there, but it's just it's a very tender moment and it's one that uh LaBeouf particularly sells as something spontaneous and arising out of uh the feeling that he has developed the the affection that he's developed for Zach and then there are other scenes where and this might again go back to the screenplay where it feels as if he's really just trying to muscle something out of his lines where it feels almost like overacting in the interest of injecting some energy into a scene that otherwise wouldn't have a whole lot. And I, I think that it's a little bit distracting at times and I'm not sure whether that is just LaBeouf maybe not being uh, reined in by, by the directors enough or, or, you know, asked to modulate his performance a little bit or whether he's just stuck with kind of an unplayable character and or an unplayable scene and he's just trying to do the best he can i definitely see that a lot in dakota johnson's performance which i again you know her character just there i'm not sure there is a way to play this character in a way that makes any sense and dakota johnson tries her best but you know when she when she's asked to essentially have a meet cute with LaBeouf's Tyler in this gas station in the middle of nowhere while Tyler's, you know, holding a shotgun and covered in sweat and is a total stranger to her. There's not really a way for her to react to him 
in a way that feels honest to the way that an actual human woman would react to being confronted with a bearded stranger in a gas station in the middle of nowhere. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's this, this scene where it's like, no, it, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. I, I, I found the film kind of it interesting, and I, I do, I do disagree on Lebeau's performance. I, I think some of it feels forced because his character is kind of forcing these things out and so it it did work for me some of these ideas kind of floating around in the movie we we get a soundtrack that sounds similar at times to a gospel choir we get kind of some folk songs in the background here that mentioned the gospel and we also get one scene where a character baptizes uh, Tyler and Zach and LaBeouf has this this funny line. He's like, I'm more of a baptism by fire type. And uh, part of it is just because this is a really kind of southern-soaked movie, uh, the cultural aspects kind of bleed through. Uh, this very almost evangelical backdrop. So we're, we're getting some of that here. At the same time, this film is suggesting that three different types of people who are very different and it, it is a hard thing to to pull off and there are times like you we just mentioned you, it's hard to pull it off but three very different types of people coming together and making a family there's this very religious background that you have a, an environment where people are getting second chances people who are very different are kind of coming together and so there is almost a a christian backsplash to the film that that just seems to kind of linger like hey people get second chances and hey people who aren't as seen aren't seen by some as valuable are very valuable and that's important and i think in that sense the movie does kind of work because we get something that shouldn't happen these characters probably shouldn't be together and it feels a little weird but yet they do and it's kind of that gospel focused background that we're kind of hearing and and sort of even seeing in this movie yeah there's a there's a thread of grace that runs throughout the film uh primarily focused around tyler uh we the first time we see him he's stealing the catch from another fisherman and in the next time we see him, he's burning down $12,000 of equipment owned by that same fisherman and, you know, then running away. So he's not entirely sympathetic the, the first time we see him, but so much of the film that ensues is focused on kind of finding grace for him, finding how even though he's failed so much in his life and he's carrying this burden of guilt over something in his past involving his brother, there's still there's still a path forward for him and it and he kind of finds that in his companionship with zach and with eleanor uh, dakota johnson's character so i can appreciate that whole journey that is kind of sketched out for him i don't know that it's ever really made entirely intelligible to the audience why why this specific character and these specific choices kind of follow that trajectory but it is it is there uh to to be appreciated if you find that compelling yeah i mean these people have lost 
faith in themselves, but they find it in in the people around them. I think that uh, uh, Bruce Dern, he has a funny performance near the beginning of the film, and then Thomas Hayden Church comes in as the saltwater redneck. And some of that's just, it's just funny, the saltwater, you know, redneck. Uh, We do get... John Hawks and a couple other people, they are individuals who are attempting to track down Zach and Tyler, and that doesn't really work very well. It just feels like something it feels like something different. A different movie. It's not spliced in like it should. So this film has obvious weaknesses, but I, I think maybe just because it does wear its heart on its sleeve, maybe just because it is just fun to kind of watch and fun to be with these characters it ultimately works for me yeah i mean i I wish i could come along with you on that uh hard on your sleeve journey where where you can appreciate it in spite of its flaws but yeah i I don't know if i can (laughs) if i can quite make it over there there's just there's enough there that that just plain doesn't work that it is disappointing to me i am curious to know though um what you made of where this film ends up. So the entire film is kind of built around this odyssey of Zach trying to uh, find his hero, this pro wrestler uh, who goes by the name of the Saltwater Redneck, and to become a pro wrestler in his own right by training under uh, this guy. Um, it's not spoiling too much to say that they, they do find him, in a sense. Um, but I'm curious to know what you make of the ending where uh, the film goes from kind of a maybe more whimsical register into something that's overtly uh, supernatural or having this magical realism to it. I, I'm curious to know what you made of that that shift that it makes at the climax. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I alluded to it earlier, but it, it just doesn't it doesn't work because it's not fully integrated into the movie, and that we don't we don't get really any. We don't get anything visually that tells us what we need to think about it. Is it in someone's mind? Uh, I think that's really the only way that it works because we don't get we don't get magical realism really anywhere else. And so either the film needs to say, "Hey, this is some sort of vision. This is a metaphorical vision," or it needs to give us some breadcrumbs. To move us to that place, uh, so it it just doesn't work. The whole ending really is kind of rushed. I mean, I, I mean, it is. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one of the film's uh, faults. How, how about you? I, I I assume just kind of what you mentioned earlier that you just you weren't having it either. <laughs> I, what what gave you that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a way to make something like that work, but the foundation kind of has to be laid for it throughout the rest of the film, even if it's not a full-on, disconnected-from-reality, sort of fantastical view of these characters. We kind of need some hints that what we're seeing is not entirely set in the world that you and I know, so that when these more fantastical things do happen, we're able to accept it, and where it can kind of accrue meaning. Whereas I I think the, the ending here just doesn't work mostly because it feels a little bit like they they knew where they wanted to go and so that's where they went 
but there wasn't really any of that work done to to lay the foundation to get them there. So what you're saying is it needs more Jack Black and it needs more stretchy pants. Is that kind of what you're saying? <laughs> you know, any <laughs> film, almost any film would be improved by more Jack Black. Yeah. I, I am into that idea. Listeners, that is our review of The Peanut Butter Falcon. It is a, a small film, so it's uh, kind of had more of a limited release, but you can see it if you know where to look. If you have gotten a chance to catch up with it, we would love to hear your thoughts about the magical realism or about any other aspect that you found compelling or didn't, as the case may be. Wade, we are reaching the part of our show now, though, where it's time for us to share a film that we, a film or television show that we do love um, with our listeners. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so probably a couple months ago, two months ago, I talked about watching a film with Judy Garland, Meet Me in St. Louis. And Priscilla said, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite movies, which kind of blew me away because I don't think in the ten, almost 10 years that we've been married that she has ever mentioned it. But uh, she really enjoys this movie. So we sat down and we watched it and she knew all the songs and everything. And I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, I thought it was a, a pretty good movie. It's from 1944, directed by Vincent Minnelli. And... It all kind of revolves around the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. There are four daughters who learn that they are about to move to New York. And all of this kind of takes place in the backdrop of the fair uh, at, at the same time as they are uh, learning uh, to uh, date as they are gaining and even kind of losing new friends. So it's a fun journey. Uh very good picture. And since we talked about Judy this week, I thought it would be great to recommend that. So meet me in St. Louis. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. That gives me a place for me to start with rectifying my horrible, horrible blind spot and not having seen enough Judy Garland films. So that's that's a good place for me to begin. I'll jump right on that. Uh, My recommendation for this week is a film that I was thinking about when I was trying to piece together why the Peanut Butter Falcon didn't work for me the way that it perhaps wanted to. And I landed on this film as an example of a film that kind of does what the Peanut Butter Falcon set out to do, except it actually succeeds at it. So, um, And that would be the 2012 film Beasts of the Southern Wild. This is another film directed by uh, another de- feature debut filmmaker, Ben Zeitlin, um, it's also set in the South and it also has notes of heightened realism or magical realism in it. And it also centers around, uh, what some people would think of as societal outcasts. But what I think Zeitlin gets so right about this film is from its first minutes, he situates us very much with the perspective of the main character, a child named Hush Puppy, played by Kuvanjane Wallace in maybe what is the most awe-inspiring performance from a child of that age that I've ever seen in a film. I think she was four or five when she made this picture, and it's just incredible how unselfconscious she is in the role. Um, but from minute one, we are... We are in her headspace. We come to un- see the world through her eyes. And this is all accomplished through the cinematography, the the editing that has maybe splashes of Malik in there. It's just a really great picture. And I think 
the peanut butter falcon illustrates maybe what some of the naysayers of beasts of the southern wild were saying about that you know it's a little bit too whimsical that doesn't really respect its characters so much as see them as kind of whimsical figures in a fable uh i think that it's a really strong picture that just has so much heart and examines how you can make a family out of the people around you uh just it's 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 wonderful it was my second favorite film from that year and i can't recommend it highly enough so check it out if you get a chance beasts of the southern wild i do need to watch that movie i have rented it but i just never got a chance to see it so yeah it's one that i definitely need to check out especially as we kind of come up on the anniversary of that you know that film year yeah, it's def- maybe that'll be something that we can talk about whenever we get to 2022 and we do our you know 10 year retrospective on on that film year. Yeah, no, I, I think that'd be uh, that'd be really great, listeners. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and CriesandPopCulture.com. That is all we have today. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Now. Kevin, the plan next week is to discuss Todd Phillips's The Joker, which I don't think anybody's going to really talk about that movie. No controversy at all. Probably yeah. slip under a lot of radar. <laughs> so, well, you know. you know, that's that's what we're all about here on Seeing and Believing is championing the the underseen film, the little guy, the indie pictures that fly under the radar. So we're we're going to fulfill our mission with that next week. <laughs> well, I you know what I'm not too interested in uh, reading about this movie on Twitter. I am very interested in talking to you about this movie, The Joker. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. That'll be next week, listener. So make sure to tune in. For now, I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.